Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Subscribe to Unchained on YouTube, where you can watch the videos of me and my guests. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Heads up, as you may recall, we did a survey to find out what you all want from the show. Thanks to all who took the time to take the survey. We now have the winners of the contest for our survey respondents who have won Crypto.com Metal MCO Visa cards. They are Thomas Schwartz, Caleb, Forrest, Anonymous, Herbert Blasingale, Ammon Bingham, Tim Lane, Antoine Vu, Ahmet Chala, and Katie Mayo. Thanks to everyone who answered the questions in our survey and congrats to our winners. Tea Quorum is a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Every Wednesday, join thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts for presentations about the latest advancements that help the ecosystem grow together. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases until the end of September. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's show is the second in my series, Why Bitcoin Now?, which looks at Bitcoin in this macro environment. The topic we'll dive into in today's show is the history of money. Here to discuss are Neil Ferguson, Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Harvard Institution of at Stanford University and the author of numerous books, including The Ascent of Money, A Financial History of the World, and most recently, The Square in the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. The other guest is Michael Casey, Chief Content Officer at Coindesk and the author of two books on the co-author of two books on crypto, The Age of Cryptocurrency and The Truth Machine. Welcome, Neil and Michael. Hi, Laura. Good to be with you. Thanks for having us. Both of your paths to the world of cryptocurrency have been quite different. Why don't you each describe how it is that you came to both have a background in the history of money and then also get involved in crypto? And Neil, do you want to start? Sure. Well, I'm a, an historian, as you said, and I've spent much of my career working on financial history, which is really my core competence. Many years ago, too many to count, I wrote a doctoral dissertation on the German hyperinflation of 1923 and subsequently wrote histories of a couple of of banking uh, dynasties, the Rothschilds and the Warburgs. So that was really uh, my path into being an academic historian. And, uh, and in 2008, I tried to not knit together a lot of uh, my earlier work uh, in a book called The Ascent of Money, which you already mentioned. And that book started, I guess, as a Harvard course in international financial history. And by 2006, seven, I'd, I'd come to the conclusion that it should become a book and that there was going to be an almighty financial crisis. And it would be rather good timing if I could bring it out around about the time of the crisis. And sure enough, by the time I'd, I'd finished, I also did a TV series called The Ascent of Money, the crisis was well underway. The, the, the book came out a few weeks before uh, Lehman Brothers blew up. But if you were paying attention, it was really 
not the Lehman bankruptcy that, that signaled the beginning of the crisis. You, you'd actually seen the beginnings of the crisis in late 2006. So, of course, the Ascender money came out in the same year as uh, Satoshi's paper uh, on Bitcoin. Uh, that meant it couldn't be included in the book. Uh, but, of course, I was uh, intrigued uh, when I heard about Bitcoin. Uh, brief anecdote. Uh, my then teenage son, who's now 21, said to me one day, hey, dad, I really think you should get into this Bitcoin thing. And I gave a very pompous response along the lines of, my dear boy, if you had read The Ascent of Money, you would know that it is impossible for money to exist uh, without the backing of a state. Uh, so do not waste my time with this obviously doomed innovation. Well, by 2016-17, he was having a laugh at me, and I was admitting uh, that I was wrong. I'm one of those academics who's capable of saying I was wrong. So around about 2016-17, uh, he and I together um, began really seriously thinking about crypto. And uh, uh, he helped me to, to really up my, my level of knowledge, along with one of my former students, Manny Rincon Cruz, who's become a co-author. So over the last three years, I've, I've really been uh, self-educating. And I came to the conclusion uh, on the 10th anniversary of the ascent of money that I'd been very, very wrong and that this is part of a really extraordinary financial revolution. So I updated the book, added a chapter on crypto, and the new edition is available at all good bookstores. So that's my story. Wow, great. Uh, we, I guess we owe a credit to your son, <laughs> especially yeah, you. <laughs> name check, Lachie Douglas Ferguson, who called it. And if he'd only been empowered by his father to do some investment, uh, would probably have retired by now. <laughs> so. So, Michael, I know well, you, so I, yeah, you I, have a similar I, I, story. Well, it's not quite similar, but it's, I do also have to thank uh, Neil's son, because if you remember, Neil, uh, I badgered you. In fact, you called me a first-rate nagger, and I, cause you, eventually, <laughs> you eventually caved and, and wrote a blurb for the age of cryptocurrency. Uh, and it was a fabulous blurb. It was, it was if you think, I, I, wish, I was actually trying to call it up, but I don't have my book here. Right? I can't believe exactly what it was. But you referred to, if you think that Satoshi is a type of fish, uh, <laughs> or, or a, a Japanese form of sushi. Um, and uh, it, was, it was brilliant. And, and so I, I thank you for that. And I, but I, I, I imagine that your son, um, you know, was, was, was helpful to me in that regard. Um, as for my journey in this area, it really comes down to having lived in Argentina. Um, so uh, I think somebody once described, explained to me that, that Michel Foucault, who, who covers, you know, who wrote about madness and, and how really the study of madness was actually the study of what we call normality. And I tend to think about Argentina a little bit like that when it comes to what money and the functioning of society is. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely love Argentina and I love Argentines deeply. Uh, but there is a dysfunction about Argentina that is extremely illustrative about what it is that, that kind of makes the intersection between government and money function in places where it is supposed to function, the dysfunction 
illuminates things. And so I just became fascinated with this breakdown of the social covenant that was evident in the 10-year cycles that Argentina has. Every 10 years or so, the entire system breaks down. And it doesn't matter whether it's hyperinflation as they had in the in the 80s or deflation as they had once they tried to peg the currency uh, and control that in, at the end of the 90s going into the 2000s. And there was a massive breakdown then. It's part of the same problem. And you start to I started to think about trust. I had no idea how to frame this. Uh, but that's what I was I was doing. I wrote a book uh, uh, called The Unfair Trade that sort of drew a little bit on some of that, but sort of looked more broadly at the financial crisis that was as emerging as after I came back from Argentina. I was the bureau chief there from 2003 to 2009. I came back to the US. The crisis was in in full swing. And that was my beat, basically, as a, I was at the Wall Street Journal and I was writing uh, about currencies and about um, you know this this incredible moment in in our financial history, reading uh, books by Neil and and really digging into these things, um, and then at some point, and I think you know it wasn't that early in the process. I wish I could have seen Bitcoin for what it was, um, you know, earlier. But it was around mid two thousand and thirteen. I think it was the time of the uh, um, the crypto. It was in was it in Crete? Where was it? It was there was a there was a blow up in Cyprus. In Cyprus. That's right, in Cyprus. Yep, and the uh, there was a banking crisis there, and Bitcoin sort of suddenly soared. And I wonder what the hell this thing was, and wrote a pretty ordinary column. Uh, saying, you know, this is, this is crazy. You're sort of minting money from your computer. How on earth would that work? Um, and it wasn't. It, I, I was interested, and clearly, I, I, I knew there was something sort of profound about this concept, but I just didn't really get it. And then I was taken out for dinner with a bunch of other journalists uh, uh, by a few people who were really quite sort of. You know, they came from a normal background, it seemed to me. Uh, one of them now actually is the owner of the company that owns Coindesk, Barry Silbert. Um, there was also Jeremy Allaire there from Circle. But most interesting to me was was Raj Date was there. And Raj Date at that time had just completed a role as the interim head of the CFPB, uh, the you know Consumer Financial Protection Board that Elizabeth Warren had championed, and I was like, "Hang on a second, these what's a guy like that hanging out with all these crazy libertarians?" And then, around the the sort of course of the conversation, I think it was Barry, but somebody just pointed out to me how valuable this concept could be to emerging markets, to places that do ha don't have where the institutional management of money is a bigger challenge. And I just want to use that because it's not necessarily their fault. It's I think I see these problems as systemic and it's a global problem as much as anything else. But in these places, the capacity to control their money has been a challenge. And therefore, you know, it's this problem for, for individuals and the Bitcoin and, and, you know, some of the ideas around it could be really valuable. And I just, so at that point, it clicked. And I saw it all through the lens of my Argentine experience. And and then I was in. I, that, that's when I went down the rabbit hole and started thinking, I was very interested in property rights. I'd, I'd uh, had a lot to do, quite a bit to do with Hernando de Soto, uh, met him and written about things with him. And I was very interested in this idea that we, that the records needed to have an environment in which they would not be corruptible by some central party. And it just all started to come together, went down the rabbit hole, wrote, wrote the age of cryptocurrency with Paul Vineyard, eventually um, figured that this was too big a thing to just have as a little sideline dalliance and 
dived into a, a, a stint at MIT at the Digital Currency Initiative. Now here I am finding my way back into media. But um, yep, it was it was very much a developing world framing that that made me realize that this was a this was a big deal. Yeah. So, uh, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, the series that this show is going to be a part of is looking at Bitcoin in this current macro moment. Um, and I think like a lot of the threads that you guys pulled out are things that we um, will discuss kind of in a moment. I actually just want to lay a little bit more groundwork so people kind of understand um better how the pandemic might change the environment for cryptocurrency. But in order to even understand, you know, uh, that, let's talk a little bit about what led us to the financial system we have today. So even just going all the way back to the basics, like, what would you say, um, like, what is money? Or historically, what has made something money? Or how have people decided that something's money? Well, I once tried to explain that to Stephen Colbert on the Colbert Report, and uh, if memory serves, what I said was, well, well, Stephen, m- money is just uh, the realization in some usually tangible form, but not necessarily, of the relationship between a creditor and a debtor. And the first money was clay tablets in ancient Mesopotamia uh, thousands of years ago. Today, we can represent the relationship between a debtor and a creditor Digitally, it's some, something that appears on a, a screen. But Stephen, anything can be money. You, you could use an enormous shell or a, a piece of stone. And, and Colbert replied, can I be money? Uh, and I said, yes, Stephen, you, you can be money if you want. So I think that's the, the first building block. One has to realize that uh, we've represented over the ages the relationship between a creditor and a debtor in all kinds of different ways. And uh, it hasn't always been coins, and it certainly hasn't always been banknotes. Most people still, even in 2020, have in their mind's eye a banknote, a dollar bill, when you say money. And uh, it's quite hard to persuade people that actually a really small fraction of uh, the dollar, US dollar money supply takes the form of of, of banknotes, uh, and as for coins, it's a rounding error. Uh, most money today is, in fact, created by banks. Uh, the central bank plays uh, a, a regulatory role, uh, but ultimately, uh, it's actually the banking system that that generates the bank accounts that that are money uh, in our system. And I think the key point I would make is that the system we have today is of relatively recent origin. Uh, it could really be traced back to around 1971 when Richard Nixon, then president, uh, ended the link between the dollar and gold. Uh, you could go all the way back uh, to the late 17th century if you wanted to find the origins of the gold standard, of the link between money and, and gold. And even further back, if you just wanted to find the link between gold and silver and money. But we ended that in the early 1970s with the collapse of the system known as Bretton Woods, which had been created at the end of World War II. And this ushers in the era of fiat currency, an era in which money is essentially what uh, a government uh, determines, and to be precise, a particular government authority, a central bank. Uh, so the era of fiat money is is actually shorter than my lifetime as I was born 
1964. And I think to understand why uh, cryptocurrency has become the object of so much fascination, you have to recognize two things about the era of, of fiat money. The first is that, as has already been pointed out by Michael, for many countries, and Argentina's just one of many cases, managing a fiat currency has proved extraordinarily difficult. There are powerful political economy temptations uh, to debase the currency, and those existed even when we used coins. Uh, it's easy to debase the currency if you have a central bank with uh, what we usually refer to as a printing press. It isn't that anymore. It's just the ability to create money uh, out of uh, the ether. That that temptation has led many countries down the path of very high, if not hyperinflation. Uh, and so the obvious argument for uh, something like Bitcoin is that you are creating at least a store of value, maybe not a particularly efficient means of payment, but a store of value that you will uh, be able to rely on even if the Argentine government or the Zimbabwean government or the Venezuelan government decides to create the currency with extremely uh, reckless time and consistent monetary policies. The second point to notice, which is generally missed by the people I know in the crypto community, is that the argument you're solving the problem of inflation works much less well in the developed world because in truth, uh, countries like the United States, most European countries, and Japan ceased to have a problem with inflation some time ago. The, the inflation spike was in the first decade of fiat money in most of those countries. Uh, since uh, the beginning of this century, the problem has in fact been deflation, not inflation. And the recurrent headache of central banks, first in Japan uh, and then in the United States and Europe, was that they couldn't in fact keep the inflation rate in positive territory. That became acutely scary after the 2008 failure of Lehman Brothers, uh, because it seemed as if the world was going to be plunged into a, a second Great Depression with uh, debt deflation driving us into a a dire tailspin as in the 1930s. And the central banks had to work extremely hard to avoid that by using all kinds of unconventional monetary policies, of which quantitative easing is the best known, but there were others too, zero interest rates, forward guidance, a whole toolkit of new techniques which have not been inflationary. In fact, they've underperformed in terms of inflation targets. So I think when one's thinking about the need for monetary innovation, it's really important to recognize that what Michael described in Argentina is a problem for only those parts of the world that we call emerging or developing. For the big economies uh, of the Northern Hemisphere, this is not the problem that you're really trying to solve. I'd like to key off that, actually, <clears throat> because... Um... Uh, you know, and, and I know that there's a lot of people in the kind of, um, I would call them the metalist, hard money kind of crowd that are drawn to Bitcoin who would think that the, the this this new, so it's not new, but modern monetary theory that is uh, is out there is is sort of heretical. Um, I'm reading still, so this is like a confession. I'm reading Stephanie Kelton's book at the moment, the uh, the, the 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 deficit myth. And I don't know that I buy into, in any way, the prescriptions that the modern monetary theory folks come up with about just forget about uh, deficits, just just spend because you can um, from a government's perspective. But I do think that the way that they frame what money is is very interesting. When I, and, and, it, and it relates to how I came into to Bitcoin. Um, it, it took me, the way I saw the world, because I came out of this Argentina experience, 
to recognize what Neil started out talking about, which was the, um, the, the, the relationship between debtor and creditor, the idea that the real function of money was this ledger keeping role. And that allowed me to understand that Bitcoin could be money, that it, that it really was, it was the blockchain that mattered. It was the record keeping function. But I think a lot of people who are drawn to Bitcoin are obsessed with the, with the scarcity function, which is a key component of it. Really, you, you have to have some form of monetary policy embedded into the algorithm. But I don't think it is fundamentally just scarcity that matters, right? It, it's because of the many things that Neil's referring to here. Is it deflation or inflation? What is your problem? To me, it is about can you trust the governance of the monetary system, whatever that system is? Can we trust that it is being operated in the form that we that we want? So I what I do accept from the MMT crowd is that I I recognize the reason why I'm going to accept a dollar uh, rather than a, a shell as currency, even though, as Neil pointed out, it could be either one, is because this particular form of money comes with this imperative that the government imposes upon us to pay your taxes in it. And so the MMT crowd tell us that that's what makes the dollar the dollar. Is it's not, and that's why taxes matter, not because it is a way to actually extract resources to then make payments, but rather to impose a, 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 a compulsion to actually use this particular currency. And if you think about it from that perspective, then okay, so if if you were to create, just imagine if you could create a, a, a modern monetary theory model, which is to say you just don't worry about about the deficit per se. You don't have to balance the books as the government because you're an eternal being, uh, but you do worry about inflation. Um, and, and if that is the case, then the key, most important feature of the monetary system is trust in that in that government. Because now we're handing over to them, and that's where I don't think their theory is, is particularly practical because there is an enormous amount of mistrust in in these entities. But it is it does bring us, interestingly, to questions about the role that blockchain solutions can have here. And not necessarily on a, on a sort of a national or even international scale, but around communities, because it's about the governance of the type of money that my particular community, and I can live in multiple communities in a digital era, right, is, is, being, is being managed. And so I, I see these two pieces coming together. That is the, uh, the role of the ledger to keep track of our debits and credits, the, the debtor and creditor relationship. That is a fundamental part of money. And, and in fact, the, 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 the transfer of notes as I see them is a kind of a physical representation of the ledger, if you like. Um, and now, of course, the digital version of that, it has to be kept as a ledger. But the fact that that ledger cannot be tampered with is, is a critical point. But then it is... What, what is the actual governance model of the of the monetary system underneath that? Um, and, and is it something that cannot be corrupted? Uh, that is where I think we see this really interesting intersection between the solutions that the Bitcoin blockchain world has come up with and the challenges that both those governments fighting deflation and those fighting inflation in the developing world have had to grapple with, which is at its core a fundamental trust challenge between the users and the actual, uh, uh, you know, the, the government, those who are governing the monetary system themselves. Yeah. And actually, so I, something that I find really fascinating about this part of the conversation is 
you know, as Neil pointed out, um, it, you know, it's pretty obvious uh, in emerging markets kind of what the appeal of Bitcoin's monetary policy would be, and it may be less obvious in developed markets. But what's so fascinating to me is that obviously we know that in the Genesis block of the Bitcoin blockchain, Satoshi put the message, the Times, 3rd of January, 2009, Chancellor on brink of second bailout for banks. So it appeared that in that instance, well, why don't you say what, so what message do you think Satoshi was sending in that moment? And, you know, how does it reflect on your point about what the benefits are to different economies? Well, I think the key issue is, is the timing that uh, the Bitcoin was created uh, in a relatively uh, early stage of a massive banking crisis that extended uh, right across uh, the Atlantic. Uh, and, and in fact, was as, as serious, if not more serious in the UK uh, and uh, and European Union uh, as it was in the United States. Now, I think one way of, of coming at this is just to try to get the sequencing right, which I don't think uh, the proponents of modern monetary theory do. There, there's something uh, wrong with that whole theory from a historian's point of view. You have to remember that for most of history, the state does not play a particularly big role in the economy. Uh, it's really quite a small thing. Uh, and uh, the terms of the monetary system in, say, Renaissance Italy aren't set by governments. Uh, they're set by merchants. Uh, there are multiple competing currencies in the early modern world. And uh, as the world becomes more globally integrated, and it was already remarkably globally integrated as early as the 16th and 17th centuries, uh, there are flows, cross-border flows, uh, on really large scales that, that determine uh, where money is most readily available. And this carries on being true right into the 19th century, with the role of the state actually shrinking so that it reaches a really low level in most places in the 19th century, whether you're looking at Europe or, or China. So the monetary system for that period is essentially a function of the needs of, of merchants and, and ordinary people. And uh, Tom Sargent has written a really interesting uh, book on this, The Big Problem of, uh, of Small Change, which is well worth a read. Then second phase, uh, which really doesn't uh, get going until the 18th century, is the discovery by governments that they can finance large-scale warfare through the issuance of bonds. Bonds had a prehistory in the Italian city-states, but they don't really take off as a, as a form of security until the 17th and 18th century. And it's in fact Britain that, that pioneers the idea of a bond market as a major source of financing uh, for government uh, with the advent of a perpetual security no, known as the console. Meanwhile, equity finance is still at a relatively early stage of development. There had been an experiment with it uh, in the early 18th century, principally as a means of, again, financing government warfare. And it had gone rather horribly wrong in the South Sea Mississippi bubbles. And, and for at least a century after that, equity finance is kind of frozen. And it doesn't really take off again until the 19th century railroad era. This is the right sequence of events to think about, a series of financial innovations, uh, only some of which are propelled by the government. 
It's not until the 20th century with the world wars, which are on an unprecedented scale, that the government really becomes the dominant player in the financial system. And it becomes apparent that central banks, which had originated as private entities, are, are in fact agencies of government debt management. And the system revolves increasingly around the problem of government debt. That was the central problem of the period from really 1914 right through until the period of the 1950s, managing the huge stocks of debt that people accumulated when they fought wars. If you lost the war, ask any German, it ended in disaster. Uh, the government didn't just default on its bonds. The money uh, in which they were denominated uh, became worthless. That happened twice in German history at the end of the two world wars. So I think what is missing from uh, much of the modern monetary theory is a recognition that the financial system's evolutionary and the state has not always been the driving force. We now arrive at a time, the early 21st century, when the relationship between the government, the central bank, and the banking system more broadly becomes highly unstable. Uh, and that's really the, 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 the story of 2008. Uh, it's not really fully resolved in Europe to this day. The fundamental problem was that the banks of, say, Italy had on their uh, balance sheets great quantities of Italian government debt. If there was uncertainty about Italy's ability, A, to service the debt, and B, to remain part of the monetary union, in whose currency the debt was denominated, then the banks themselves were in mortal peril. Uh, and that's why it proved and still has proved so difficult to solve the problem of the relationship between the sovereign and the banks uh, in Southern Europe, because they lost uh, their monetary autonomy when they joined the euro, when they became part of that monetary union. Now, that problem doesn't exist in the US. And let me make one final point. Because the United States issues the fiat currency, the dollar, that most transactions around the world are conducted in, uh, because a huge proportion of international trade uh, is in dollars, and because the dollar also happens to be the most popular currency in central bank reserves, there is almost no visible limit to how many dollars the United States can print or how many bonds it can issue. And as long as uh, the demand for those uh, currents, that currency and those bonds remains uh, as great as the supply, uh, then, in fact, we exist in a strange and very unusual era in which there is no difference between money and bonds because the interest rate on the bonds is zero or close to zero. And that is the strange world we currently inhabit. To believe in modern monetary theory, I think you have to believe that that world is a permanent state of affairs. Or if that's not the case, then implicitly you are basing uh, future policy on fiscal, not monetary methods, in that you will use taxation uh, to avoid inflation. Uh, I personally don't regard the present era as likely con to continue for very long. Happy to go into why that is in a minute. Uh, and therefore, I I think we need to recognize that MMT is only credible for two reasons. A, people know virtually no financial history. B, they take the erroneous view that the present state of affairs of, of zero or near zero nominal rates will continue for the indefinite future. Um, I, I'll just jump in if it's okay, Laura, because... Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, it sounds like you want to respond. And after that, we'll take a commercial well, break. Well, because I'm not here, I'm absolutely not here to defend MMT. And I, and I, yeah. and I, and I think yeah. that... Um, I think that is 
the, the core issue is this idea of the permanent state of the state, as if the state itself is always operating in this world. I think that the notion of a country has this kind of permanent state, but how, what its governance model is is something that is is constantly changing and fragmenting. And I think Neil's point about the fact that money has always been through this evolutionary state, and it's only so recently that government played the central role in it, um, is, is, is critical. Um, I, I do want to pick up on, though, your initial question about, about Satoshi's comments in the banks. But before I do that, I think, and it, this is, I think will lead us into a different uh, conversation about this potential post-COVID era, as we're talking about. But that there is almost this ebb and flow between the power and the centralizing power of the state and how it then wanes over time when the system can't sustain it. And I feel like that's what we, we, it may be that we're moving to a fragmented role, a fragmented situation, and therefore what type of money we have is going to have to kind of basically comply with that, uh, which means the state's role in it would be would certainly be diminished and therefore any kind of MMT theory about how this is all going to uh, be managed with this, this sort of, taxation as an inflation tool and, and everything to spending it just seems seems impossible because things are getting fragmented but in terms of satoshi's commentary in that moment when the release of bitcoin in 2000, early 2009 um you know it, it is about the sort of centrality of the banking system to the money as far as i see it none of us can deign to say what was going in in his head but you know is the problem uh fiat money or is the problem the fact that we've we, we are completely dependent upon this fractional reserve banking system, uh, and and that interconnection between those banks and and the state, uh, the the too big to fail problem that became the defining feature of the crisis, to me. You know, when I was writing about it then, I just saw this as the banks holding the citizenry hostage, that they're, they're their own kind of, they, they were given this, you know, moral hazard allowed them to take as much risk as they could. Uh, and then there would always be a bailout of those banks because if not, there would be a systemic breakdown. And why did we care about systemic breakdowns? Why didn't we just let the whole system collapse? Because our monetary system was dependent upon that. So the idea that we could disintermediate the banks uh, and, and, and create a model that was, you know, whoever the issuer was, whether it's the government, an algorithm or gold, you know, the earth, um, whoever the issuer was didn't, didn't have this powerful gatekeepers in the middle who could essentially sort of dictate the terms that we would now have a sort of a, a, a more direct relationship between the users, we the citizens and, and the issuer of the money. Um, that's to me one of the most powerful things that sort of Bitcoin has brought this disintermediation, and it's the essence of decentralization, right? So, so that's where I see. It. I, mean, I, I think in many respects, Bitcoin attacks banks. It doesn't necessarily attack governments, hmm. um, and and that's that's I think one of the most important readings on this. Yeah, I don't know if a lot of Bitcoiners would agree with. Well, I mean, they would agree with maybe both, uh, but uh, certainly there's that libertarian um, sentiment there. Um, so in a moment, we're going to actually just continue kind of this line of thinking uh, around maybe the transparency of blockchains and trust, but also a shift to something more decentralized and basically user owned. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. How much in fees are you paying for your crypto purchases? Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases, which means you can buy crypto with a 0% fee. 
Apart from your crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping too. Get up to 10% back on Uber Eats, McDonald's, Domino's Pizza, Walmart, and many more when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? On the Crypto.com app, buy gift cards and get up to 20% back from merchants like Whole Foods, Safeway, Burger King, Papa John's, and Domino's. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers till the end of September. Looking for a place to connect with thought leaders, innovators, and blockchain enthusiasts of every level? Welcome to T-Quorum, a weekly virtual series about all things Tezos. Each week will feature presentations about the latest advancements, from baking and staking and developer tooling to DeFi projects and community content that will help the ecosystem grow together. This year, T-Quorum will be opening up its podium to you. If you're interested in presenting, submit your ideas, and the Tezos community will vote on who they'd like to hear from next. Sign up and learn more about the virtual series at tquorum.com. Back to my conversation with Neil Ferguson and Michael Casey. Um, so there are actually a couple of different uh, strands from what we were discussing that I want to pull out. And one that was just um, like throughout financial history, there have just been so many bubbles. Um, you know, you have, uh, referenced uh, what happened um, kind of in the very early stock markets. Obviously, we've been talking about the housing bubble. And I just wondered, so, you know, as Michael mentioned, when you have this ledger, it's more transparent. Like, do you think if we were to switch to some kind of future of blockchain based money or financial assets, then that would Will mean like the end of bubbles, or where do you think that could lead us in terms of a new financial order? Well, Laura, I think the idea of a, a world without bubbles is only plausible if you replace the human race with some other species uh, that isn't susceptible to our many cognitive uh, biases. Uh, one of the arguments I tried to make in the Ascent of Money was that this evolutionary financial system uh, ultimately is uh, subject more than anything else to uh, to the human uh, psyche. And uh, I'm not talking here just about the old greed and fear story. Uh, it's a more profound point than that. Ultimately, uh, the, the price of any uh, financial instrument, whether it calls itself money or a bond or, or a stock, uh, is is a reflection of of expectations more than anything else, uh, the expectations of uh, uh, the future price level, uh, in particular, and historically, uh, expectations uh, of inflation have in fact fluctuated quite widely. Right now, in uh, the, the principal developed economies, they seem remarkably uh, stable and low. Uh, but that's an odd state of affairs and quite unusual. For most of history, uh, there have been big fluctuations uh, in uh, the price level and uh, periods of, of high inflation, uh, which have often taken people by surprise uh, because wars are not predictable. And wars have been historically the principal driver of unexpected uh, moves in the, in the price level. So history is really a kind of learning process. Uh, people periodically suffer from amnesia, we're going through one of those phases now, and they forget that time inconsistent policies by governments uh, regularly produce bursts of inflation, uh, or even defaults. Uh, as, as Michael rightly said, the idea of an infinitely lived state is entirely at odds with historical reality. 
uh, because in fact states come and go. And most of the states that currently exist in the world, a clear majority didn't exist 100 years ago. Uh, just to make one very obvious point, uh, Germany, which we think of as a sort of pillar of uh, fiscal and monetary stability, uh, has been through multiple currencies uh, and two hyperinflation episodes and default episodes. Uh, the thing is that revolutions happen as well as wars. Again, we can't predict uh, when they happen. They nearly always take people by surprise. There were bankers, uh, American bankers, wandering around uh, Petrograd and Moscow in 1917-18, thinking that probably it was quite a good thing there had been a Russian revolution. They didn't see it coming that Leon Trotsky was to go, to go into default on the entire Tsarist Russian debt, one of the biggest defaults in all of history. So I think the key here is that expectations are based uh, not on some kind of uh, supercomputer that we carry around in our heads that constantly maximizes utility. Uh, expectations are based on what we remember of history. And we keep on being surprised because of this unexpected in incidence of, of warfare uh, and revolution. Uh, now, that brings us to the question of whether you can kind of create an instrument that is is somehow uh, immune to these fluctuations in sentiment. And the answer is you can't. Uh, a gold isn't a solution uh, because remember, uh, uh, gold has fluctuated tremendously in the, in its uh, dollar price uh, over the past uh, a century, and uh, you could never be entirely sure that gold would continue to be available to you as a store of value. One of the things that Franklin Roosevelt did in the 1930s was to make it illegal for Americans to hold gold uh, as private citizens. Uh, the idea that Bitcoin can somehow solve a problem that gold could couldn't solve, that nothing has been able to solve, was never to me plausible. And the volatility of Bitcoin as a, as a financial security, which is how it sometimes appears to, uh, to behave, uh, is the proof of that. Uh, what you're seeing when Bitcoin's price fluctuates wildly, as it's done uh, in the last five years, uh, is not variations uh, in the supply of US dollars. Uh, it, these are fluctuations in expectations of investors about the future of Bitcoin. Uh, and as we all know, as everybody listening to this uh, podcast knows, uh, those, those fluctuations have been enormous enormous because there's great uncertainty about the future of Bitcoin. It only seems like the other day that an influential economist, Nouriel Roubini, was calling Bitcoin shitcoin and predicting that it would go to zero. It's not that long ago that the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman was dismissing uh, Bitcoin in much the same way that he once dismissed the internet as a kind of nothing burger. And so there's all kinds of confusion, uncertainty uh, and downright error about the future of this uh, particular instrument. And that's why we will have another Bitcoin bubble at some point. I can guarantee that. Uh, and during that whole cycle, which will be, what, the fifth? I've lost count of the big Bitcoin bubbles there have been. There'll be the same debate that we had back in 2017 between the people who say it's going to the moon and the people who say it's shitcoin, it's going to zero. And both of these views will be wrong. Uh, over time, I think uh, Bitcoin will cease to behave uh, like an option. I think it behaves like an option on digital gold right now. A term that I owe to my friend uh, Matthew McLennan at, at First Eagle. Uh, gradually, over time, the longer it survives and the more useful it appears to be, uh, Bitcoin will behave less like an option on digital gold and more like digital gold. Mm. I 
take the view, and I'm probably going to annoy a majority of listeners now, that Bitcoin isn't going to become money in the sense of uh, the means of payment. I think Bitcoin is a peculiar kind uh, of digital gold that people will want to hold in their portfolios uh, because it has behavior different from other asset classes and it's not uh, closely correlated with them. And I think the more people who take the view that Bitcoin will live, that Rubini is wrong, the more uh, people will hold it in their portfolios. And that uh, preference for Bitcoin as an asset with uh, diversification quality uh, will push up its price. Uh, it, its price will not go up gradually. It will go up in steps uh, and each step will look like a bubble. And each time the bubble bursts, Nouriel Rabini will say, you see, you see, and each time he'll be wrong. <laughs> yeah, um, Nick Tomato of One Confirmation, he's one of the venture capitalists in this space. Or, or no, sorry, I, I think it's... Um, um, Adam Draper, uh, another VC in the space, he says that Bitcoin breathes. So it like takes in an, ex an inhale and there's a bubble and then it exhales and then inhales. Um, so, Michael, there's so much in there. You you can feel free to respond. But actually, one other question I just wanted to throw in was like, you know, because it just fascinated me that the way Neil was going, it's it's it started to sound like he didn't think it was going to be digital gold. But I guess ultimately he thinks it actually could take up that mantle. Um, but one other aspect that I wanted to draw out is like in, uh, in relation to my question about the bubbles is also like, you know, I feel like maybe this is a shift back to um, like if, if you think of Bitcoin as a user owned system or any of these blockchain networks as user owned, sy owned systems, then this is maybe a reversion to um, previous kinds of money that like were not um, kind of uh, government run. So I just was sort of curious also to, to maybe throw that in the mix because uh, we're uh, far into the episode and yet we still have so much material to cover okay um <laughs> so uh, like yeah as always whenever i talk to neil i or hear from neil my brain starts going because he's he inspires so many just interesting uh trains of thought um uh, look on, on the bubbles especially i just think also i, I love this this idea that it is it, it, it price levels are always a reflection of this kind of i suppose waves of expectations and we go through these cycles where expectations are very bullish and then expectations are very bearish and that sets the price level so i mean it's interesting to think where we are in this situation where it's period where we're not seeing any inflation in money but we are certainly i think seeing it relative to what would imagine the under underlying return on stocks right now there is has been significant asset inflation certainly since the bottom of the post-covid uh, uh you know moment if you like in march it, it, because there is this expectation that somehow this return uh, on assets is going to to be higher, at least denominated in the money that we're that, that that's being issued against it. Um, so, but the thing about bubbles that I find also important there's we had Carlota Perez, who's a very interesting uh, thinker around innovation cycles and bubbles, as uh, a speaker at uh, Consensus. Uh, Neil was also a speaker at Consensus back uh, in in May. And, and she's, I think, take, takes this sort of big step back view of what a bubble is. And it's this, uh, it's this perspective how by, whereby you unlock innovation uh, by, by bringing this sort of this, this speculative moment actually then kind of it gets invested into these moments of kind of almost like technological paradigms. And there are different moments when a particular type of technology becomes 
the driver of this innovation wave and therefore the driver of all the speculation around it. So we saw it in the dot-com bubble. We've certainly seen it in blockchain. We've certainly seen it, and we've seen it in lots of other times. So bubbles almost are necessary evils. Uh, this idea that you, you unlock all of this value, you actually create a framework in which the underlying technology can be uh, developed with a cheap currency, which is the high level of the of the equity attached to that particular thing. So I don't know that that's a bit of a tangent, but I think it's just an interesting way to think about things like expectations. Um, with regards to, to sort of Bitcoin and digital gold, I actually just generally agree with what Neil said. I've, I've never really thought that Bitcoin could be money. I'm not a metalist. I don't, I don't, I really don't think that uh, for one, just this sort of hardly hard baked scarcity function. Again, this is going to annoy a lot of a lot of listeners, but I, I don't think it is the, the the most interesting innovation here. The most interesting innovation to me is the is the governance of a of, of a of a ledger system, of a monetary system for how we manage our debts, debits, and credits. So the 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 idea that uh, Bitcoin could become a, a global the, the global medium of payments strikes me as as very challenging in terms of its limits. I very strongly believe that it, it is uh, you know almost ideal to become a reserve asset for the digital age that it becomes essentially yes digital gold because we are living in a decentralized we have two worlds we have a centralized real world and a decentralized uh, uh, online world and we just have to look at how twitter and facebook grapple with who is actually governing this conversation right now to understand that that is the biggest challenge we have is this is this decentralized architecture for our online existence uh, and and bringing order to that just means censorship and control in a way that the internet doesn't want, right? We we as the we as the citizens of the internet do not want censorship and control. So what is our money going to be in that system, right? What is the underlying reserve asset for that system, which we then build other other payment vehicles on? And I think that Bitcoin sits there as as something that as the anchor potentially for that. So, you know, digital gold, at least if you go back to gold in its, um, you know, in, in its in, in, in its role, in some respects, as an underlying uh, uh, base layer for for money uh, is, is, is one aspect of this. I also think, though, that it's just gold has persisted throughout the, the millennia as uh, as 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 if. If Bitcoin is a, is a digital option on gold, gold I see as an option on on chaos, on on the breakdown of of a of, a, of whatever other monetary system exists. So I see Bitcoin as kind of transferring into that world that it's always there as a backstop to 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 a breakdown in in the otherwise you know previously functional monetary system. Yeah. So and actually, I, why don't we maybe just uh, use this as a jumping off point to kind of talk about kind of the current, um, I guess, global landscape uh, when it comes to the financial world, because I think there's just so many interesting forces at play. Um, obviously, we're in the situation where the US dollar is the dominant global reserve currency. China would like that to not really be the case, probably. And they're kind of maybe perhaps gaining a first mover advantage with various different types of digital currency, whether you're looking at the DCEP or even with they're doing with uh, their different payment apps, which are becoming used, you know, even outside of China and some of these emerging economies. And then meanwhile, you know, I do agree with you, our digital world is just moving faster than our analog world. And so at the same time, we've got things like Facebook's 
uh, well, it's not Facebook's Libra, but um, Libra, which is coming out and will, you know, be accessible to Facebook's platform, which is, big, you know, has a bigger user base than the population of China. Um, and yet at the same time, then here we are talking about how, you know, Bitcoin is an option on um, perhaps chaos erupting in some fashion, which um, it really does feel in these times like it's a distinct possibility. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you have heard, but Chamath Palahapitiya, um, who uh, became a billionaire from working at Facebook and now is chairman of Virgin Galactic and uh, does social capital, he Basically, that's why he believes in Bitcoin. It's like pretty much only for that reason. So I just wondered how you thought all these factors were going to play out, like what would happen to the U.S. dollar um, and the various kind of central bank digital currency efforts amidst all these other, um, you know, movements that we're seeing with other kinds of digital currencies, not from governments. Well, I was writing the new version of A Sense of Money, which is two years ago now. I tried to give as much space to the the various Chinese innovations as I gave uh, to Bitcoin, Ethereum and the crypto world. Because in terms of scale, actually, the Chinese payment platforms, uh, Alipay and WeChat Pay are more important. Uh, They are gaining uh, market share more rapidly. uh, and and, And that is very simply because they are very easy ways to pay for things. And in fact, uh, when it comes to means of payment, uh, China has in fact moved ahead of the United States, uh, largely because uh, a great many uh, Chinese citizens were ready to make the leap uh, from conventional means of payment uh, to using their telephones, their smartphones uh, for more and more transactions. And and this, this is an enormously important development because it runs counter to the trend towards decentralization and libertarianism that we've been talking about so far. The key defining feature of uh, the payment platforms that have emerged from China is that they are highly centralized and they exploit the fact uh, that you can deploy artificial intelligence on vast uh, databases of transactions uh, and use uh, the uh, insights that you you gain from uh, that to create a, uh, essentially a financial services platform in a two-sided market that brings together uh, consumers and people offering financial services. That's the essence of the Ant financial business model. Eric Jing, who runs Ant, is one of the most interesting players in uh, the world of this uh, financial revolution, because in his uh, mind's eye, you're creating an optimal payment platform, very appealing to small businesses through emerging markets. And as you rightly say, Laura, the interesting thing about uh, the the Ali and uh, and Tencent platforms is the speed with which they're expanding uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, it's also fascinating to watch uh, those companies invest in vari- a variety of different fintech uh, platforms in South America uh, and South Asia. That this is really the the frontier of the financial revolution, and it's a completely different business model from the one implied. Uh, by Bitcoin and the conversations that that happen in Palo Alto are so different from the conversations in Hangzhou and Shenzhen that they are essentially being conducted in in two different financial worlds. So the argument I would make here uh, is that uh, it's quite difficult uh, for Bitcoin or Ethereum or any other 
uh, crypto model to gain global market share against Chinese competition because China is offering a payment solution that is just much, much easier and much more readily uh, adopted. So this, this is important. If China is successful, it does pose a threat to the dollar's dominance because ultimately all of these different platforms do link back to the Chinese financial system and therefore the Chinese currency. It's not a convertible currency. The renminbi is a deeply unattractive alternative to the dollar, which is why it's not about to displace it because the Chinese daren't have a convertible currency. There would be such an outflow of capital from China to the rest of the world that it would destabilize everything, but particularly China. So the only way that the Chinese can challenge the dollar is just by making their payment platforms super convenient and super attractive. And that's what they're doing. If the volume of transactions on those payment platforms grows large enough, then I think the dollar's dominance over a five to 10 year time frame will be threatened. It particularly troubles me that in Washington, uh, whether you're at the Fed or at the Treasury, the mindset is so small c conservative. They really don't want to do anything new. They're very suspicious of Libra. They're pretty suspicious of Bitcoin. When when you ask them, but what about digital currency? They say, well, we already have that. The dollar's already digital. And so this is, I think, a sign of, of, of a very profound pathology uh, that the United States is no longer at the cutting edge of financial and monetary innovation. And so at the end of A Sense of Money, the second edition, I say two things. Number one, the U.S. is losing its leadership in terms of financial innovation. And that means it ultimately will lose its predominance because there's such a close correlation between being the financial innovator and being the dominant power. Two, and I got this right, I said the next big crisis will not come uh, from the West. It will come from China. Granted, I didn't say it would take the form of a novel coronavirus uh, that spread a highly contagious and dangerous disease, but I certainly got right that the next crisis would emanate from China. And I'll add one final point. In the final analysis, what we can't predict, as I said before, is where the next revolution will happen. Uh, where the next and when the next war will happen. But it will be the dislocations following from the pandemic that determine uh, which uh, money is the dominant money at 10 or or 20 years uh, from now and which asset is regarded as the safe asset. If, let me just give you one hypothetical, the United States and China went to war over Taiwan in September Uh, When the next U.S. uh, sanctions directed against Huawei kick in, these are the measures by the Commerce Department that would cut Huawei off from TSMC semiconductors. If there's a war over that, which I don't think one can completely rule out, uh, and, and the U.S. does not win it, if aircraft carriers are sunk in the Taiwan Strait, that will be one of those moments in history, the turning points in history, uh, which determine uh, a steep depreciation of the dollar. Uh, just in the same way that major reverses, military reverses suffered by the United Kingdom, uh, ultimately doomed uh, the pound to lose its dominant status. Because remember, the pound was the international currency uh, for reserves and for transactions, really right up until the outbreak of World War II. So that's the way we need to think about this. The present situation is not a steady state. 
You are not going to have uh, a dollar-dominated world 10 or 20 years out, and you're not going to have a zero or very low inflation 10 or 20 years out, because history will happen, and history always happens, and it happens with the biggest impact when people are most complacent and least expected. Well, so actually, I want to ask you now to follow up questions. So in that scenario, let's say that there is something like this kind of war between us and China and we lose. Well, then what do you think would happen? Because you already said that, you know, people would not trust that renminbi. They wouldn't want to put their money there. And yet right now, the main alternative is the US dollar. Um, but as we were discussing, we also have these new digital alternatives that don't require us to place our trust in government, but they are so small. It seems weird to imagine that they would become dominant out of this. So I'm curious curious to know what you think would happen. Well, I think it's likely that in the scenario I'm describing, you'd get quite a steep uh, depreciation of the dollar. Uh, But that would be probably principally uh, reflected in the appreciation of the euro, uh, which is a, a much more attractive alternate currency to uh, to the renminbi or, or any other currency that you might want to hold. But I think the key thing is that people would want to rebalance their portfolios and reduce their dollar exposure in that scenario because they would reasonably expect uh, there to be inflationary consequences. Uh, imagine uh, a Biden administration struggling with the aftermath of a strategic debacle. Or imagine let me give you another scenario that the result of the US election uh, in the early hours of, of November the 4th is unclear that in fact it looks like a tie they can't call it five or six states results are challenged and we're plunged into weeks or months of constitutional crisis that's a perfectly plausible scenario it didn't happen in 2000 when the result was really close because Al Gore conceded without really much of a fight uh, but I think this time around you could end up in an absolutely hideous domestic political crisis in the US And once again, I think this would be a very negative signal to investors in the US and outside the US. And what would you want to do in that situation? And I think the conversation would go roughly like this. Well, there isn't a kind of perfect alternative because you still have to worry about the euro's long term stability. And you definitely don't want to have a large holding of RMB that you can't uh, exit from when you want to. That's when Bitcoin, I think, will be a very attractive uh, 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 asset to hold. And gold too; those things will be bound, to, I think, to rally under those under those circumstances. Uh, so, I think what I'm envisaging is a period in which expectations about the future dominance and stability of the United States undergo a step change. We radically reassess our expectations of domestic stability and uh, global predominance. And when that moment comes, there will be a kind of rush to diversify. Uh, portfolios and it, and it will be quite uh, heterogeneous because there, there won't be this obvious alternative. When Britain declined and fell, there was this obvious alternative called the dollar. Uh, English speaking empire, better hardware, bigger domestic market was a no brainer, actually. But there is no no brainer. Uh, if the U.S. enters a period of domestic and or foreign crisis. And and that, I think, is is a pretty pretty upside uh, scenario for for Bitcoin holders, because that will suddenly look like a very, very smart thing to own in a world where there isn't any longer a dominant uh, superpower with a rule of law system. The dominant superpower is the People's Republic of China, which is run by the Chinese Communist Party, which doesn't believe in the rule of law. In that world, you really would want uh, to have in your portfolio more than just uh, 0.2% or 0.3% in the form of Bitcoin. 
Yeah. So one thing before Michael responds, um, we're at one hour. And so I just want to make sure, can you guys go over a little bit? Because we're still in the middle of this discussion and we'll try to maybe wrap it up right now. Um, But Michael, do you want to respond? And, you know, just kind of looking, you know, what we were saying, these different macro conditions and where Bitcoin might fit in or how it might fit in? Yeah, I, I, and I think, you know, where Bitcoin fits in, um, I just, again, tend to agree with Neil. What, what I would like to do uh, is, though, is paint a different scenario uh, around which the dollar gets challenged as a result of Chinese uh, activity. Um, I, I, it, hopefully it's a more peaceful uh, setting for change. It will nonetheless be a massive challenge to U.S. power because, of course, the dollar is and, and, and its role as this gatekeeping entity. Uh, uh, instrument within global finance gives the US enormous power to to impose sanctions to basically set the terms by which it wants the international order to function. That That under a diminished dollar role would go away. Now, how would we get there, though, in a way that would be less violent? I think it comes down to the fact that China is creating programmable money. Um, Bitcoin is, I would call, programmable money. Other forms of, of digital bearer instruments are, are programmable money. But the money that is currently being used by WePay and Alipay is not programmable money. It is money that still sits within uh, the banking system at the middle of it. So you have banks as intermediaries uh, that are therefore basically almost like a blocker in the capacity to have two computers transact with each other, right? The, 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 the notion of programmability that I can just literally transfer to you a digital a, a, a digital unit of value that then triggers a corresponding response of some sort by the other computer is, is dependent upon that digital unit being truly a digital bearer instrument. Well, but what about, defined, what about DCEP? Because I feel like... Well, that's China where I was going to go. Oh, okay, go ahead. Exactly where I'm going. Right? Yeah, so, okay. DCEP is really important it's not just that we have the, we, the WePay and Alipay infrastructure for the payments. That's a very important piece of this. But now China is going to create a programmable form of the money itself that essentially disintermediates the banks. The banks may play some role in terms of the distribution, but the, that is not a fractional reserve system. Ultimately, if I'm receiving that DCEP, I know that it is, that's what the unit's going to be called. Uh, it, it is something that is like a claim on the People's Bank of China, just as a dollar as a claim on the Fed. So I treat it as a bearer instrument. Now I've got something very powerful. It can be it can be used in supply chains to turn on or off pallet movers and so forth. And you can start to. So I think one of the biggest challenges to the U.S., by the way, is that this programmable form of money is going to create phenomenal efficiency in the Chinese economy, particularly around things like smart cities and all these other you know innovative industry 4.0 solutions that they are building for the infrastructure of their economy. And that will just be literally a competitive challenge to the dominance of the U.S. economy. But the thing that I'm really fascinated by is the prospect that other digital bearer instruments, let's say there is a digital ruble, and now you have these two currencies able to essentially talk to each other. There is this programmability function that is is now, if you bring in things like atomic swaps, and here we start to dive into the nerdy worlds of the cosmoses of, of this world that are created, and cosmos, by the way, is participating in China's uh, blockchain, uh, what's it called? BSN. BSN, that's right, the Blockchain Services Network. So atomic swaps essentially allow you to lock in uh, and uh, these two these two assets can now be locked in a certain way to create a space in which over time those those 
smart contracts can distribute uh, at a later date, according to whatever the terms are, the, the, the outcome of that smart contract. So imagine to me the most the, the, the fundamental role of the reserve currency, the dollar, other than just to be a place to have a store of value, is to sit there as an intermediary in trade. So one country is uh, importing, the other one is exporting. The, the, the time lapse, the, the, the 30-day, 60-day, 90-day, whatever period for that payment, leaves both sides vulnerable to, to a change in those exchange rates. And so there is a, a, a gravitation toward some centrally understood unit of account, the dollar, as the denomination for those, uh, that risky period. But if I can create a programmable structure, an escrow environment that locks in the value of the import-export contract at the very beginning, and then in 30, 90 days, whatever the terms are, the, 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 the value is, as was set at that time is distributed to me in, in the currency of the exporter um, at that value, or it isn't, it reverts back because I've locked this through a decentralized structure. To me, that is a very, very powerful way to start chipping away at the dominance of the dollar. That yes, you still have these concerns about where do I hold my assets, and so the capital flows into the dollar exists, but the underlying sort of purpose, if you like, the functionality of the dollar as this intermediary of trade starts to go away. So I, I think there's a there's there's this programmable money and the emergence of it. And this is why when uh, you know Neil was talking about US lawmakers saying we've already got digital dollars, you don't have digital dollars. They have to be have to have this programmable bearer capacity that, that makes it that, that 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 what's what makes it really powerful. And that's why I agree. That the U.S. is far behind in terms of this innovation because China is building that functionality. Now, how does Bitcoin fit into this? It still gets back to everything we've been talking about. It's if if China or Russia are now you know, you know creating this kind of programmable space between themselves to engage in global trade, I'm still having to trust in either of those environments, either as a citizen of one or the other. The you know. The, the terms as set by those non-rule of law uh, trusting entities, Bitcoin still becomes this very important uh, uh, store of value that protects me against that, that the risk that, that money itself gets debased or destroyed or used against me in some way. Right. Um, so, so actually, so yeah. I want to maybe then look at maybe the, I don't know, short to medium term but then, because um, like if we're so, you know, Neil already said he thought, I think he said within five or 10 years, you didn't think the U.S. would be dollar would be as dominant. Um, but so in the interim, and Neil, I had a specific question for you about stable coins, because apparently you um, are pretty skeptical of them. But I don't actually see that we would just shift from where we are now to Bitcoin, um, even if all these things were to happen. And that's why I do feel like there is going to be some kind of interme intermediary step like, you know, stable coins or perhaps could it be Libra? I mean, is Libra going to be that convenient user friendly answer that gets people into this digital currency world, gets them used to using it and understanding how to use it? And then that ends up being the gateway. And so, you know, what are what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two issues that we haven't touched on, which are extremely important. Uh, ultimately, uh, a world in which uh, Chinese uh, forms of electronic payment or uh, central bank digital currency predominate is a world without any privacy. Uh, it is a world in which all transactions are directly observable by the Communist Party of China. Uh, and it's a world in which there is no possibility of recourse 
uh, to uh, real rule of law uh, courts uh, in the event of uh, dispute between a creditor and a, a debtor. Uh, in fact, the last real vestiges of uh, rule of law in the Chinese system, uh, namely Hong Kong's uh, common law-based system, suffered an enormous fatal blow uh, uh, in the last uh, days with the, the passage of uh, the new Chinese national security law for Hong Kong, uh, which essentially ends uh, the semi-autonomy of, of Hong Kong. Uh, and indeed, uh, has an extra ter- territorial dimension to it in that it will apply uh, to non-Hong uh, Kong residents, to visitors from abroad who happen to be in Hong Kong if they should fall foul of the Chinese authorities. So we need to be very clear uh, that this is not a world that we want to end up in. Uh, what What is the alternative? Well, uh, the U.S. alternative currently suffers from a defect, whichever form it takes. If it takes the form of Libra, ultimately it is, uh, as you said, uh, Laura, not not Facebook's currency. Uh, but it wasn't exactly dreamt up by anybody else. It's a it's a Facebook uh, devised enterprise. And part of the problem with Facebook's uh, business model is that it is also centralized. Uh, it's not Xi Jinping who would have access to your transactions uh, in th- that world, but Mark Zuckerberg, or at least there would be that suspicion, no matter what uh, institutional architecture was developed. Yeah, the they're, they're saying the subsidiary would keep access to the data and Facebook wouldn't have it, but uh, point taken. Right, but if you ask yourself how credible a, a Facebook's commitments over a four-year time horizon? The answer is not very. And that's why ultimately it was unfortunate that of all the big tech companies, it was Facebook that took this initiative. Um, a shout out to Wences Cazares here because it was at, uh, at his birthday party before Libra was announced that I, I gave a talk uh, and at which I said, uh, the obvious solution to the, the Chinese challenges for one of the big tech companies to come up with a, a, a new form of of digital payment, but please don't let it be Facebook. And everybody in the room laughed because they all knew what I didn't know, namely that it was <laughs> going to be Facebook. So here's the way I would try to think about this. Ultimately, blockchain does offer us a way in which we could meaningfully decentralize, not just payments, uh, but all the associated data. Uh, and moreover, uh, would create uh, an environment in which ideally there would not need to be uh, recourse to law courts because the transactions would come with their inbuilt uh, contract, the contractual terms. It needs to be a decentralized alternative world uh, to the world that China is building, or there's no point to it. Uh, I think it was Peter Thiel who said that in the end, uh, AI uh, is is communist or totalitarian, uh, and and crypto is is libertarian. I think that's the key insight here. What we're failing to do in the West, and I think this is as much a problem for Europe as it is uh, for North America, uh, is to build an authentically decentralized uh, architecture uh, that will protect uh, individual privacy uh, and and that will also have some kind of rule of law uh, uh, credibility. Uh, so I, I think my my sense is that we haven't yet solved this problem and, and that Libra will probably turn out uh, not to be uh, the answer because it isn't meaningfully or at least sufficiently credibly decentralized. 
Okay, interesting. I'm actually um, maybe, well, I don't know. I, I'm not going to express an opinion, actually. So um, we are well over time, but I do want to just maybe wrap it up by bringing it maybe to the near short term, just to say, how do you think um, the recovery from coronavirus will go and how do you think that will affect the development of the crypto space um, in the near term? To like Neil or myself? Oh, doesn't matter. Either, Either one of you. Okay. So I, I think one of the things that's most uh, compelling about the coronavirus situation, um, you know, is is how it has uh, it, it, a it is global, right? So there is this. Uh, every single country is is suffering in some way from this. Every single country is not immune from the either health or economic fallout from this. And, and therefore, uh, in, in terms of how there is a response to this, um, it, it, it requires some sort of global coordination, but we do not have any system for doing so. So there is the solutions are only decentralized. They are only working at local levels. And that is a critical component of this. How do we actually coordinate that in a, in a, in a, in a global way because of the need for that is the sort of the core tension I see in terms of that, that aspect of it. Now, how does money come into this? Um, again, because the dollar is the, is the reserve asset. It is also a medium of, of exchange in countless developing countries um, and where there is a great fear that the shutdown of the global economy is going to expose the massive amounts of debt that is sitting on, you know, the books of banks and others in Europe and elsewhere, and, and, and so much of it in dollars, then you have this sort of crisis around the demand for dollars, right? So one of the reasons why the dollar, you know, is is far from being uh, knocked off its perch right now is because everybody wants it to it's, it's like a margin call if you like on on the risk that I would I would face as a, as a debtor I need dollars to pay back my debts and so there's a huge demand for dollars and the Fed is obviously trying to meet that with an incredible amount of, of unprecedented quantitative easing um, but what does this mean for say Nigeria or uh, or Zimbabwe or so many places around the world in which the dollar is their now means of, of payment and you're seeing it I, like never before, if you look at Paxful, right, which is this peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, uh, Bitcoin exchange, if you look at um, uh, local Bitcoins, which has long functioned as a means for people to actually exchange Bitcoin, you're seeing rises in demand for Bitcoin across the developing world because the, the, the instrument that they were using, the dollar, is globally in a shortage despite all the Fed's efforts. It's plenty of it sloshing around uh, U.S. financial markets, but there's not much of it sitting in uh, the, the hands of merchants in, in places like Nigeria. Nigeria has always been dollarized because of, the, of its oil trade. So, so you're seeing this kind of meltdown in the, in, uh, uh, the economic fortunes of, of the world. That's exposing a debt problem, which is creating a demand for dollars, which is creating, therefore, all of these dysfunctional problems for those who've relied on it to actually run their economies and crypto suddenly works its way in there as a, a as an interesting alternative take a look at what's happening in zimbabwe right now where the zimbabwean government has just banned digital payments so you know which was covering 85 percent of all transactions in zimbabwe and you are definitely seeing an increase in demand for crypto as a result of that so i see it as as this you know shock if you like to 
to this this global system, uh, and 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 therefore all of these kind of localized solutions starting to emerge uh, because of that global shock. I know we're nearly out of time, Laura, so I'll I'll be very brief in uh, in just adding a couple of points. Uh, pandemics are at least two year affairs. Uh, and uh, we we have had, I think, the delusion that there was just one curve that we had to flatten. Uh, in practice, uh, there are nearly always uh, several waves uh, when a new pathogen uh, spreads around the world. We've seen that in uh, multiple cases through history. Uh, so this ain't over. And even if there's a, a big breakthrough in vaccines, by the way, I hope you're enjoying the vaccine bubble that we've been uh, witnessing. Uh, even if there's a breakthrough, there isn't going to be a generally available uh, vaccine uh, until well into next year. Uh uh, that means that uh, governments are, are playing various uh, games of whack-a-mole. There are two variants. You can play it with a blindfold or without. Uh, without means you do testing and contact tracing. Uh, you exploit uh, the data that you can garner from, from apps and smartphones as they do in Taiwan. If you decide not to do that, and the United States has decided not to do that, I think for rather spurious reasons, then you play whack-a-mole uh, with the blindfold on, there's going to be a good deal of uh, of disruption uh, as we uh, as we play this blindfold whack-a-mole. Uh, the economies uh, of the United States uh, uh, and its peers are, are actually recovering faster than people expected, but that's partly because uh, we decided to have a second wave this summer, uh, and it's not clear to me how far yet that's going to derail recovery, but somewhat. Uh, in, in this context, I think it's important to, to notice uh, that the dollar's uh, preeminence was successfully reasserted by the Federal Reserve from the very uh, earliest phase uh, in, in March. And, and the Fed did not only, uh, as you've mentioned, a massive balance sheet expansion, Michael, more importantly, I think, uh, it used its international swap lines and a new repo facility available to nearly all central banks uh, to satisfy the demand for dollars in that dollar squeeze that we saw back in, in March. If you look at, uh, say, M3 growth rates, the dollar is, uh, uh, is growing uh, in its supply at an extraordinarily uh, rapid rate, far faster than uh, any other major currency. And that's why ultimately one can see trouble ahead. But right now, uh, in the first phase, the first quarter of the pandemic, uh, you, you'd have to give it to Jay Powell and the Fed. They successfully uh, played the part of, uh, of the world's central bank. Uh, but you're right, Michael, that what you see happening in unstable countries, uh, Argentina was where this conversation began, maybe it's appropriate to end there, uh, is uh, is one of the places where demand for Bitcoin has, has leapt upwards. Uh, because in countries, especially in South America, where citizens have reason to be fearful, not only of the competence of the public health system, but fearful of the banking system, fearful of the domestic currency, uh, they, they, there's no doubt that Argentina's for another period of crisis. It was already in default negotiations before the pandemic struck. Uh, my, my involvement with Walla, one of the neobanks in South America, uh, has given me an insight to this. And we can see the demand for Bitcoin. We can see the way it's jumped up during this, this lockdown period. So I'll conclude by saying that as we're at a relatively early stage of the pandemic, and this is going to be uh, with us uh, into 2021, with considerable divergence in economic performance.
importance. I think the onus is on the alternatives to the US dollar to show what they've got. And uh, it will be, I think, an enormously important time for every innovator in financial technology. We've been given a great chance to show that neobanks work better than traditional banks. The lockdowns forced people away from traditional branch banking and forced them to adopt uh, the new technology. So that's phase one. I think phase two will be how well the Chinese experiments go and how far the Chinese platforms are able to gain market share uh, in the uh, rest of the world. Uh, and then finally, I think, let's see what happens with Libra 2.0. It's been radically modeled and in some ways reduced in its uh, in its scope in the new variant the opportunity is there for financial innovation to accelerate in this time of crisis as i said in the ascent of money it's an evolutionary system uh, we see periods of of great uh, uh, divergence of variance uh, of speciation, new entities come along, and we see great dyings of older institutions. And I am not capable of predicting who the winners and losers will be in this great evolutionary uh, period of disruption. But that's why it's a financial revolution. We're in it now. And I think there are huge possibilities, enormous opportunities for financial and monetary innovators, precisely because the world has been plunged into this crisis. Great. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I just feel like we could go on forever because there really is just so much change happening right now and so much to discuss. And I think the only last point I'll make is I think in that way that I framed that question earlier about Libra, you know, I was thinking of a comparison to the internet like AOL, where at that time you did need something to get people used to the internet. But frankly, I guess now like people already think of money digitally anyway. And so if on the back end it's blockchain based, like, I mean, granted that there are certain things they will have to learn about security and behaviors around that. But still, I do think you're right that the the stepping stone for it isn't as great. And so in that regard, perhaps we could see people going directly to cryptocurrencies, as you say, um, is happening in some of these emerging markets. So who knows what will happen? Maybe we'll have to regroup in a year or two and see what panned out. Um, okay, so in the meantime, where can people learn more about each of you and your work? Well, I have a website, uh, neilferguson.com spelled N-I-A-L-L I'm not the epidemiologist from King, uh, from Imperial College London by the way uh, and you can find on neilferguson.com all my journalism uh, interviews there's a YouTube channel if you've uh, if you haven't already had enough of me uh, personally my preference is not for you to read my tweets uh, or even my journalism but to read my books uh, and my books are available in all good bookstores as well as inevitably on Amazon Right, and you can, uh, I have a website as well, michaeljkc.com, although it's a little out of date. Uh, needs an updating. Uh, obviously, Coindesk is the place to find a lot of, much of what I do. Money Reimagined is the weekly newsletter I'm putting out uh, that is grappling with a lot of these themes. Uh, and, and you can find that at coindesk.com. Do subscribe to that newsletter because it arrives in your email but, uh, uh, inbox uh, every Friday. In fact, it's just about to hit right now. Oh, can't say that. <laughs> uh, it, it it is that money reimagined. You can find details there. Uh, there's there's also um, you know various other aspects of of what CoinDesk does and CoinDesk.com. So so please check it out. Perfect. Well, thank you both so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks so My much. Pleasure. For- 
Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. To learn more about Neil and Michael, check out the show notes for this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the podcast on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Nuss, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.